If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to the prophet Isaiah as I will read Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now will I tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard? I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of this sermon might be pleasing and acceptable to you. Grant this, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. What are some reasons that you sing? I think it's probably the case that I most frequently sing in church. I'm grateful for our song leaders who encourage us, push us, <laughs> uh, teach us to use our voices to praise God. You know, one reason that we sing is because we're around other people who are singing. As we will soon be resuming the choir, wouldn't it be wonderful, Teresa, to see this choir full? When people gather with others for the express purpose of singing, right, that's a reason that we sing. Sometimes you might sing just because you're happy. You hear the birds chirping, coffee brewing, and things just feel good. Maybe you have a song on your heart. Uh, my niece and nephew, when I'm over at my parents' house, sometimes I'll sing for them. And they'll say, Uncle Luke, stop, please. I sing out of tune, which is not hard for me to do. Uh, and uh, I like to tease them by my singing. You know, one reason that we sing is to make people laugh or bring joy. Perhaps you've sung a love song to your beloved. Music can be a way that we express our love. Music and song can also be a way that we grieve. And that's what we find in our passage today. It is a song, but it's a song of lament. And what's interesting about this song of lament is that it's not Isaiah singing about the woes of the people. The prophet has brought a song from God. He's looking at Israel, and he is grieving that Israel is not what he delights in. 
Right? He uses this image of a vineyard. He's planted. He's turned the soil. He's built a tower to keep it safe. He's protected it. He's watered it. And yet the only fruit that this vineyard has produced are sour grapes. What does that mean exactly? What is this bad, unproductive fruit that's been produced? The key is found in verse 7. He looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed. You see, the people of Israel were supposed to be different than all the world. They had a specific purpose in place to bring the world the message of God's holiness and justice. And yet they failed. And he was grieving that. The next seven weeks, uh, well, five more weeks. We started last week. This is the, week's, uh, the second week. We're looking at uh, a series. And the series is drawn from the image at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talked about those who, who heard his teaching and acted upon it. He described them, he likened them to people who built a house on a rock. The rains, though they fall, the house will stand. And he warned that those who hear my words but don't act on them are like someone who builds their house on sand. Right? That house, as I mentioned last week, it might look good. It might have a wraparound deck. It might have all the amenities that one would want. But if the foundation isn't on rock, when the rains come, when the storms come, the house will fall and mighty will it be its crash. So here's the theme for these seven weeks. Build on the rock. Listen and act. But can we speak more specifically? I'm grateful for the code book. It enables us to do repairs on buildings, on structures, on homes without having an engineer. Now you might feel like you know enough that you don't need an engineer. And maybe you don't. But for the vast majority of people, the code book that's used for building is helpful. Because if you build according to the code, the structure will be safe. And I want to use that image to suggest a couple of things, that seven things that we need in our life to build on the rock. Right? The first that we looked at last week is wisdom. Our minds, our understanding must be illuminated to who God is if we're going to build on the rock. There are many who wander in darkness. Sometimes people wander in darkness because they choose not to listen to the God who's revealed himself to them. I hope you won't be that way. I don't want to be that way. I want to know the Lord and I want to know his will for me more and more. And the wonderful promise we find in scripture is that God meets those who want that. He invites us to pray for wisdom, to pray for illumination. So if you struggle with knowing what God wants for you, I want to ask you, are you seeking that? Today, we're going to look at the concept of justice. Justice matters to God. Now, it might be that you have a little 
trauma when it comes to a discussion of justice in our present political climate. And here's what I mean by that. This might be unnecessary to say. I might just be projecting my own sensitivity. But every time you turn around, you hear justice with a new adjective associated with it. There's economic justice, social justice. I even heard a new one to me, food justice. I'm not sure what it is, but it sounds good. <laughs> Sometimes discussions of justice are used in such a way to try to make political opponents feel as if they are not interested in doing what is right. It's a way of tearing down an opponent. Uh, and so I understand that talking about justice can be something that we uh, have a certain suspicion about what, what is being addressed. Well, here's what I want us to do today. I want you to hear this, <laughs> that God cares about justice, right? Verse seven, matters to God. And if it matters to God, we want it to matter to us. But this morning, I'm not interested in addressing the big issues of public policy. I realize that none of us are really impacting public policy, right, directly. I want to ask you to think about your duty and obligations to others, right? That's a way of thinking about justice. Our obligation to our neighbors, to our family. Are we fulfilling our obligations? This morning we read one of the most famous parables that Jesus taught. It's one of the most beloved, the Good Samaritan. In fact, we live in a, this parable is so beloved that if someone is described as a Samaritan, a Good Samaritan, we think of them as a helpful person. When I was in college one time, I was driving home from Waco all the way to Arlington, Virginia, and my car light came on. The engine ran out of oil. So I had to pull over and there had been a crack and I was losing oil and I didn't know what to do. This was before the days of cell phones. So I went into a phone booth. Normally I just went into phone booths to change. <laughs> you know, I used that at camp and the kids didn't get it. <laughs> I went into a phone booth and I called home. What do I do? I'm in the middle of Arkansas. Didn't know anyone. I was at a little Motel 6 or a Howard Johnson. Rough, felt like a rundown part of town. And there was a man in the lobby who said, boy, I overheard you having some trouble. Big, rough looking man. Looked like he just stepped off a pirate ship. <laughs> As you know, I have a vivid imagination uh, he was talking about all sorts of th problems in his family, and he had a wild and all sorts of drugs and violence. He wanted me to go with him uh, to ride bogging in his truck in the rural part of... I said, maybe when I come back. <laughs> 
I didn't know what he wanted or what my future would hold. But he went and he, we had to go to a car shop, I mean a auto parts store, and he bought some parts and fixed every bit of my car, got it ready to go, and he refused to take a dime. Just put me on the road. I suspect many of you have had such an experience, somebody in some way you didn't expect, who helped you just because you were in need. When we experience that, we recognize, we call it, it's a good Samaritan because of this parable. But this parable is meant to address this issue of obligations. You see, there's a lawyer, an expert in the law, we're told. This likely is someone who would have, in our day, gone to seminary. Would have studied from those who knew the law. And he asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. I can even say that in Hebrew because I went to the seminary. I might even be called an expert in the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. The man knew what he was supposed to do. He knew what the right answer was. But you notice what we learn in the text. The man seeking to justify himself. Right? That word justify comes from the word justice. He was seeking to look just. To feel just. To be able to be comfortable that he was a good person pleasing to God. He asked the question, well, who's my neighbor exactly? How tight does that circle go? And Jesus told this story about the man coming down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountain. You always come down from Jerusalem, going to Jericho. That is a road that is notoriously dangerous. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a student in Israel, and we hiked the Jericho to Jerusalem road. And we had armed guards in front of us and behind us the entire way. And the reason for that is because they were necessary. Because mischief could be done very easily and as the group got spread out, people could hide and you couldn't see them. I can imagine that the Levite and the priest, when they came upon this man that was beaten and left for dead, that they thought to themselves, what am I supposed to do? I know this I've, quite directly. I've shared with many of you, one Easter Sunday, I was getting ready to come to our sunrise service, and I got up, I forget what time it was going to be, 6 o'clock, 6.45, I was coming to the church earlier than normal and when I stepped out of my apartment on West Beverly Street there was a man passed out right in front of my car I thought I've got a service to be at I've got to go preach I don't have time for someone who imbibed too much When I worked in Southeast Washington I remember one day watching as a man was beaten across the street being pummeled by two or three people. And I remember telling my boss, 
We need to do something. He said, don't get involved. He also said he had it coming. I don't know what that meant. But <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to want to hide. I remember another time where someone was being beaten on the street. I didn't see this. I just heard the, the knock at the door. The doorbell was being rung, and I went to the door to answer it. In that part of Washington, the doors are solid metal. You can't see unless someone's looking in the little camera. And uh, I heard a woman saying, you need to help this man. So I went and opened the door, and it was the local prostitute who walked that street all day, every day. This man, some people had pulled up and had pulled him into the car. They were going to take him off somewhere. Who knows what they would have done to him. And that prostitute who nobody talked to, I don't think I ever talked to, grabbed onto him and held onto him until they pulled away. She wouldn't even come in the building. She just rang the bell and went upon her way. Justice. Are you doing enough? Well, here's the problem. If you ever want to set out to think, I can do enough, you started in the wrong place. Do you know what September 22nd is in sep uh, 1792? It's an important date. Probably most of you don't recognize the date. Uh, that was the day that the French Republic declared it was the year one. Right? They, they killed the king. And they believed they were ushering in a new time of justice, you know, fraternity, equality, liberty. It would be a new age. They completely changed the calendar. You know what followed? Historians have come to call the reign of terror. What they found was their attempts at justice even perhaps rooted in a desire for people to have equality and fraternity and liberty. When it came to the stubbornness of human hearts, it burst out in violence. 16,000 people were beheaded in a small period of time. And even after all of that bloodshed and violence, there was not fraternity, liberty, equality. That hasn't stopped subsequent generations from thinking that they're the generation that could do it. They're the generation that could make the turn and if they just organize society right, it'll be free of all problems. The Russians tried it in 1917. The Chinese have tried it. Human hearts are sinful. Our hearts are sinful. They're broken. They're wicked. And yet what we find is that that brokenness grieves God. And he's not going to abandon this world. He's come to bring righteousness, to bring holiness. But it's to misunderstand the story of the Samaritan, to think, well, this story of the Samaritan is be on the lookout in case someone's beaten up and be sure to do that. What Jesus is saying is if you have to ask what are the limits of love, you're starting in the wrong place. In the New Testament, the book of Isaiah is quoted more than any other book with the exception of Psalms. And most times, or 
Yeah, most times there's a formula citation. So for example, the book of Matthew, the gospel writer will say, in the prophet Isaiah, it was written, and then he'll quote Isaiah. But that's not the only way Isaiah is quoted. Sometimes the quote is more subtle. It's kind of an echo. And that's what we find in John chapter 15. And I want to turn your attention there because Jesus is quoting the song of the vineyard. It's an echo of this very passage about justice, about God looking at a garden that's broken down and grieving it. But this is in Jesus' farewell discourse to the disciples where he says this, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. It's interesting to hear that, isn't it? You cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. It seems to run up against the very fact that Jesus used a Samaritan. Does this mean that no one who's not a Christian ever does anything just? Clearly, that's not what God is saying. Here's what I want you to hear. That the fruit that Jesus wants you to bear in your life can only come through the empowerment of God himself. Today, as Barrett mentioned, is the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost. Isn't it interesting to think about the fact that after Jesus was raised from the dead, the message of forgiveness of sins was being declared. And yet Jesus said, wait, you're not to go until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It is only by the very Spirit of God that we are able to do that work that God would have us do, to bring healing to hearts. So here's my question for you. Are you waiting upon the Spirit? Are you depending upon the Spirit? When you do, here's what we'll find. I love that one of the images of the Holy Spirit is fire because of the flames of fire and the tongues of flame. I went, for those of you who are here at our Christmas Eve service, one of the things that's very interesting to me is when we light the candle from the Christ candle and those candles go throughout the sanctuary. Isn't it interesting? It begins with just one flame. Right? And yet that one flame can be the source of enough light to fill the whole sanctuary. God's Spirit has the power and the abundance to fill all this world with the glory and knowledge of God. May we give our hearts to Him and to His work. God grant it. Amen.